Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra's Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 16 November 2022. This is lecture number 79 of Membrane Biochemistry, and we we're talking about lipids that are found in the nucleus of eukaryotic cells, specifically mammalian human cells, that regulate and control the activity of certain transcription factors. Now we're going to go into depth uh, on that particular subject right now. So let's do it. All right. So diacyglycerol kinases are enzymes which synthesize phosphatidic acid. And it's been discovered that there's a diacyglycerol kinase zeta isoform that's expressed at high levels in the nucleus, as I say, and it, it was shown to alter, that is, diminish the growth of a certain cell line in culture. And it did so by decreasing the concentration of diacyglycerol, because obviously it'll take diacyglycerol and phosphatic acid. So alter that ratio. And now that cell line is called A172. Now what that cell line comes from is from brain tissue of a 53-year-old male patient that had glioblastoma. So that's interesting because it seems that removing diacyglycerol can inhibit glioblastoma cell growth. So details. Phosphatidic acid itself, that's not the product of that DAG kinase, regulates steroidogenic gene transcription because it serves as an agonist for a transcription factor, a nuclear transcription factor receptor called steroidogenic factor 1, SF1. SF1 regulates the transcription of multiple genes in the endocrine system, including the genes that are required for steroidogenesis, including those steroid hormones we talked about before, including cortisol, uh, and overall endocrine development. So the diacyglycerol kinase zeta directly interacts with that transcription factor, steroidogenic factor 1, SF1, and activation of the cyclic AMP pathway stimulates that DAG kinase activity in the nucleus of adrenocortical cells. So now you have the detail of how that whole process was being recruited uh, in the nucleus. Remember, there was a uh, sphingolipid-mediated response there as well, okay? And remember that diacyglycerol is a substrate and product of the two-pathway conversion, where you have glycerolipid biosynthesis and you have sphingosine lipid biosynthesis. And both of those are occurring in the nucleus of the mammalian human cell, okay? thus regulating expression uh, of genes via alteration of transcription factor activity. Now, there's more detail coming now. Now, consistent with that, what I just mentioned to you, for the ratio of diacyglycerol to phosphatic acid in the nucleus, you have proteins called lipins, L-I-P-I-N. And those polypeptides are actually phosphatidic acid phosphatases. Right, so they have that enzymatic activity. And therefore, what are they going to do? They're going to synthesize diacyglycerol. And that's actually part of the canonical Kennedy pathway, glycerol-3-phosphate pathway. Now they're in the nucleus, okay? 
And so it seems like these lipins, nuclear lipins, control gene expression. So lipin 1 actually binds to proxone proliferator activated receptor alpha, and thus it serves as a coactivator in the expression of all the genes that PPR alpha is involved in controlling, again, at the chromatin remodeling level. And those genes, which are controlled by PPR-alpha, include fatty acid uptake via receptor-mediated uptake, either lipoprotein or CD36, mitochondrial biogenesis and overall function. That includes the interaction between the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome and all the epigenetics I talked about in that scenario in the previous suite of lectures before these last 78, now 79. And overall, lipid metabolism, PPR-alpha is controlling all of that. So lipin-1 helps control that. And lipin-1 is a phosphatase, which <laughs> synthesizes diacylglycerol. Okay. Now, so is that moonlighting or not? Well, no, because as it turns out, that phosphatase activity will then alter the activity of, of protein kinases because you're increasing DAG in the nucleus. All right. Now. Studies have identified that cyclic phosphatidic acid, that's correct, it's a new molecule altogether, is a PPAR gamma antagonist. And it binds to the receptor at nanomolar levels uh, and it inhibits the expression of all the PPR gamma target genes, including those involved in adipogenesis, which means it's going to be associated with multiple pathophysiologies, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and of course, obesity-linked metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes. So what is this? Cyclic phosphatidic acid, or CPA, is a naturally occurring analog of a growth factor-like phospholipid mediator, which is, of course, lysophosphatidic acid. So LPA is its own effect on gene expression. Now, the SN hydroxy group of CPA ultimately is, is a, a combined in a five-membered ring with the SN3 phosphate. So it's a little bit about its structure. Let's continue on. One acyl SN glycerol 2,3 cyclic phosphate is actually CPA. Now there are multiple species of that, but it was first isolated from a mixamoeba of a true slime mold, which is a physarium species. So that lipid, CPA, the original one described as chemical structure described, was then named physarium lysophosphatidic acid. But actually, it's a cyclic phosphatidic acid, right? So it, was, it used to be called PHYLPA in the literature. This was all microbial literature at the time. So PHYLPA is related to lysophosphatidic acid, obviously. Chemically, it is, and it is actually a very simple, and, and in terms of its molar mass, the smallest of all the glycerophospholipids that you find in membranes. So PHYLPA comprises basically a cyclopropane-containing, the specific one first described, hexadecanoic acid at the SN1 position, and a cyclic phosphate that's going to be um, involved in the SN2 and SN3 position of the, glycerol, of the glycerol backbone. So a derivative of that phi-LPA having a cyclopropane-containing octadecanoic acid, 
CAT now, was also isolated from that same amoeba. And, uh, and what, what people did when they first isolated these lipids, they said, well, put them in cell culture and see if they do anything. This is often how, how uh, unusual lipids are treated it's, or unusual metabolites are treated. When you find a high level of it in something like uh, a nucleus, you say, well, maybe it has some nuclear effect. So they put it in human fibroblasts and they found that the acidecanoic acid cyclopropane containing CPA would inhibit eukaryotic DNA polymerase alpha and therefore the proliferation of human fibroblasts in cell culture. Okay, so that's an interesting story, right? Now, let's, go, let's get into now the mammalian system in more detail. CPA analogs with all different kinds of fatty acyl chain lengths and levels of desaturation were detected in human serum. So CPA activates a otherwise described LPA G-protein coupled receptor. Okay. So that okay. So let me let me let me fill in the details now. The cellular effects of CPA are actually though remarkably different from the lysophosphatidic acid because CPA inhibits cell proliferation. It induces actin stress fiber formation, and it promotes the differentiation and survival of cultured embryonic hippocampal neurons. It also inhibits LPA, lysophosphatidic acid-mediated platelet aggregation. It inhibits cancer cell invasion and metastasis, both in vitro and in vivo. Okay, so great deal of biological effects, the CPA found in uh, mammals. And it's also been shown to stabilize a carbo carbonium ion derivative of CPA, and it, then it acts as a novel inhibitor of metastatic cancer, very potent one. So this could be an anti-oncogenic uh, cyclic lipid. Now, preparative thin layer chromatography and uh, subsequent uh, HPLC analysis and mass spec revealed that CPA was extracted and purified and could be easily extracted and purified from human serum albumin. So you can find this lipid. Remember, lipids normally need to traffic, unless they're things like ketone bodies, which are water-soluble, they need to traffic with proteins. So sometimes lipoproteins will traffic, traffic you know, tricyclosterol, phospholipids, cholesterol esters, things like that. I bet that lipoproteins also traffic cyclic phosphatidic acid, but here they found it associated with serum albumin. And you know, serum albumin traffics free fatty acid as well. So using uh, ESI mass spec mass spec, it was determined that the most abundant molecular species of CPA was the palmetto wheel derivative in mammals. But they also found 14 carbon and again, 18 carbon fatty acid derivatives in the serum. Now, they estimated that the 16 colon O CPA in human serum is at a level of about 0.1 micromolar. So that's 100 uh, nanomolar, right? So that means it would be functional in the, in the, at the level that was observed in cell culture, right? So 
However, that's still a tenth less than what you find circulating of lysophosphatetic acid, which is normally at about one to five micromolar in association with mammalian serum albumin. Okay, so it's just important to know. You know, we're in biochemistry; we're also very quantitative. Now. We were just talking about proximal proliferator activator receptors. Let's get into detail of these. PPARs are a family of ligand regulated nuclear receptors, and they include the following family PPR alpha, just mentioned, PPR beta, also beta delta, and PPR gamma. Now, all of those PPARs are receptors encoded by distinct genes. In, and they're located on, in fact, chromosome 22, 6, and 3 in the human genome. The PPR gamma gene alternative promoters are responsible for three unique isoforms, gamma 1, 2, and 3. Those PPARs encode proteins that are 468, 441, uh, 475 and 505 amino acids, and they weigh uh, their mass. Excuse me, is between 49 and 56 kilodaltons. I'm just giving you the details here, right? Of the of all those different types of PPAR gammas. Okay. Now PPARs, the way they function, I saw from a paper published in Neurochemical Research in 2020. Okay, I didn't have all that those facts in my head. I'm just giving you these details because details are significant here. PPARs, after they heterodimerize with retinoic acid receptors, the RXR receptors, they will bind to promoter regions of target genes. And those regions, those response elements are called PPREs, PPAR response elements, right? And they will act then directly as a transcription factor, you know, as, as you know from previous lectures and because I was leading up to this one. So PPAR coactivators, such as PPAR gamma coactivator 1 alpha, I spent a great deal of time talking about in my lipid lectures. That's also known as PGC1 alpha. Now, what it does is it generates a very powerful role in the transcription of genes through its interaction, not only with the PPAR, but with many other nuclear receptors of lipid associations, such as the estrogen receptors, but also the PPAR gammas with PGC1-alpha involvement interact with nuclear respiratory factors. Those are the NRF1s and 2s. All those receptors play vital roles in the regulation of transcription, obviously, but also energy and lipid metabolism and the brown, uh, brown fat thermogenesis as well as non-shiffering thermogenesis. So PPAR alpha regulates mitochondrial metabolism, and that includes, of course, fatty acid beta oxidation, and that means bioenergetics, ATP synthesis, but also PPR gamma regulates glucose metabolism and, because it's involved in electron transport chain, redox, and indeed in the glutamatergic, cholinergic, dopaminergic neurotransmitter pathways. That's correct. 
Beyond that, that's all PPR alpha. PPR alpha is also involved in the metabolism of the APP. That is the all uh, negative vibe here, amyloid beta precursor protein. Directly, it's engaged in the metabolism of APP in the brain. And directly or indirectly through the A-beta, it can also influence the tau protein phosphorylation. Now, if you know your Alzheimer's disease, you know that those are the two proteins associated with Alzheimer's disease in humans. So PPR-beta-delta, it's a different family, regulates the differentiation of cells, early stages of differentiation, not terminal, but also regulates, of course, lipid metabolism, and in this case, myelination via Schwingomyelin metabolism in the CNS in humans. PPR-gamma and its coactivator, of course, PGC1-alpha, is significant for cell differentiation, and as I said, mitochondrial biogenesis, but also neurodegeneration and neuroinflammation. All right. So again, PPR gamma works through a decrease in inflammation and it enhances HDL delivery of cholesterol back to the liver. PPR gamma also increases the adipokine adiponectin. It decreases the levels of TNF-alpha, which of course is uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine. It increases PPR-gamma adipogenesis and therefore increases fat storage. Now that's all in the adipose. In the liver, PPR-gamma increases fatty acid storage. Therefore, in the liver, it's associated with steatohepatitis. Now, in the skeletal muscle, PPR-gamma decreases inflammation, just like it does in the vessel wall, uh, endothelial cells particularly. We're going to get into that in a minute. It also increases the reverse cholesterol transport, meaning getting cholesterol back to the liver via HDL. But in the skeletal muscle, there's one more thing. PPR-gamma is involved in the insulin gated, mediated glucose uptake, the GLUT4 um, metabolic route, okay? So PPR gamma is involved in GLUT4 transcription, okay? Which is involved in glucose uptake in skeletal muscle. PPR alpha, just to remind you, PPR alpha also is involved in increasing fatty acid oxidation in the muscle and in the liver where it will decrease triacylglycerol levels, increase mobilization via the high-density lipoprotein, and will decrease the accumulation of the small, dense, low-density lipoproteins. It's all in the liver, right? The PPAR delta increases fatty acid oxidation in the muscle and in adipose tissue, but also will decrease inflammatory responses in the endothelia of the vasculature. So those are just a few of the canonical features of PPR gamma, alpha, and delta in humans. Okay, and that comes from a paper published in um, oh, Atherosclerosis uh, Journal, which I will get put in, put in citation. 
So here's a paper published in 2020 that tells you, here's a summary of PPR alpha. It blocks tau hyperphosphorylation. It blocks the amylogenic pathway, right? So it decreases a beta generation and it decreases a beta generation by also in, by then the same suite of events, it decreases a beta aggregation. So those two things combined means it's anti Alzheimer's disease biochemical phenotype. Okay. PPR alpha also blocks oxidative stress because it increases the transcription of antioxidant uh, enzymes, transcription translation, and thereby decreasing the amount of reactive oxygen and lipid peroxides. PPR alpha directly involved in neurotransmission. I was just mentioning that to you. PPR alpha also controls autophagy in certain cell lineages. It blocks neuroinflammation in the central nervous system. And then here's the canonical features again, in case you forgot. In lipid metabolism in most cells, PPAR alpha acting as a transcription factor will increase peroxisomal proliferation, increase fatty acyl-CoA beta oxidation, it will also be involved in the resynthesis of polyunsaturated fatty acids. And because it's involved in ketogenesis, it regulates HMG-CoA reductase. All right. By transcription and regulating the, the uh, expression of that gene. Now, PPR gamma blocks. Here's not PPR gamma more specifics. And here we're talking about endothelial cells in particular. It blocks NF-kappa-B, you know, that's a pro-inflammatory transcription factor. Also blocks AP1, which we've just been talking about. That blocks directly in the nucleus, the expression of those two other transcription factors. Erswell involved in, in inflammation. And here we're talking about endothelial cells. Okay, what else? PPAR gamma decreases chemokines. Uh, it decreases IP10. MIG and ITAC, it decreases adhesion molecule expression. That includes VCAM, ICAM, and E-selectin. PPR gamma, as indirectly because of its role in, in the electron transport chain, decreases reactive oxygen, decreases the expression of major histocompatibility complex 2 polypeptide in the plasma membrane surface. And it's also involved in Givazo dilation vasoconstriction increases net amounts of nitric oxide synthesis. Overall, many of those biochemical events I just gave you will cause a decrease in monocyte adhesion, a decrease in endothelial, because these are endothelial cells, inflammation, and therefore a decrease in endothelial dysfunction. Okay. All right, that's PPR gamma. Now, there's different isoforms of PPR gamma, but basically that's the overview or summation of its activity. Now, what about ligands? PPR gamma natural ligands include a 15-deoxy delta-1214 prostaglandin called prostaglandin J2. Also, a natural ligand for PPR gamma is 9-13-hydroxyoctadecadienoic acid and the 12 and 15 hydroxy icosatetraenoic acids. All of those are obviously icosanoid products.
this time. Now, PPR gamma will form a heterodimer, as I've been mentioning, or at the very beginning of the I did, with other nuclear receptors, including, for example, the retinoid, retinoid X receptor, RXR, in the particular isoform, alpha. So the PPAR gamma RXR alpha heterodimer will allow for an activation either by PPAR gamma or just RXR alpha ligands. So either one of those ligands will activate the entire heterodimer transcription factor. Okay. So those heterodimers, what they do is they bind, of course, to specific DNA uh, motifs. And so those DNA mo motifs are called PPAR response elements. We've already gone through this. Now, alternatively, PPAR gamma interacts with other transcription factors that have nothing to do with DNA binding. So PPAR gamma will interact with the AP1 protein, the STAT protein, that's the signal transducers and activators of transcription, okay? But not directly binding to DNA, you see. The NF kappa B and all of those are transcription factors that regulate gene expression. But PPR gamma directly interacts with all of those proteins. Okay, it doesn't bind to DNA at all in, those, in that circumstance. So it's not acting as a transcription factor, sense restrictive. Okay, but it's it's controlling transcription indirectly by reacting with those other proteins, which are transcription. Now, the pro-inflammatory transcription factor of kappa B, which we talk about all the time in immunology, obviously very significant in the immune response, particularly in uh, promoting inflammation, right? So it is the major target for PPR gamma to suppress inflammation. This has been well described for the last 20 years, I think. NF kappa B naturally or normally will mediate the pro-inflammatory response in vascular cells. And so its activation significantly contributes to cardiovascular disease, such as atherosclerosis and hypertension. So you see why all this is very significant and how lipids play such a, an, an absolutely essential role in regulating all of the genes involved in the transcription factors which control inflammation and various aspects of human disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and metabolic disease. This is why I'm bringing it up. It's very significant. And these are all membrane lipids, right? These are all lipids which are found in the membrane, not synthesized in the nucleus. So they have to traffic to the nucleus, and they're trafficking there, member, as membrane lipid rafts, or sometimes uh, as cargo on proteins that are being translocated to the nucleus upon induction. So PPR gamma, again, uh, it, it will also <laughs> block cyclin kinases, the CDKs. Therefore, it will decrease the, R, the phosphorylation of the RB protein, and it will control the G1S transition, blocking proliferation of cells. PPAR gamma also is involved in the production of P27, which will block the cyclin kinase, the CDKs. Uh, you'll also get a decrease in telomerase because of PPAR gamma, telomerase expression, a decrease in reactive oxygen and all that. 
will in the short term, even telomerase will do this, decrease proliferation. Because why is that? Because telomerase is needed for a healthy cell to replicate. So if you decrease the amount of telomerase expression, you know, normally that's considered an aging like in sarcopenia. If you decrease telomerase expression, this is why this occurs, you'll decrease the ability for that cell to go through division, which is a good thing if it is a cancer cell. So there are a lot of other intermediates here I could talk about, but it's involved in increasing the amount of TGF beta, which decreases the phosphosmad protein, which controls apoptosis and thus increasing that. And that's all associated with increases of P53, the GAD45, and the IRF1 protein. All right. So, so all the proteins we talked about in terms of cell cycle in, in biochemistry lectures, such as the retinoblastoma protein, the MMP, the matrix metalloproteases, the TGF, the growth arrest protein, that's the GAD45, and the again, the um, IRF1, which is the regulating factor right, for interferons, all of that is regulated by PPR gamma. All right. So... The more you get into this, the more you understand the tremendous significance of lipids in controlling gene expression. I'm checking my time here. Oh, okay, perfect timing. Uh, I have to stop here. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, finishing lecture 79 of Membrane Biochemistry on the 16th of November. That's my sister Carolyn's birthday. Happy birthday, Carolyn. Uh, this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.